Thanks for joining us today. I'm Rob Parker, lead pastor at The Plant Church. Our vision is to know Christ and make him known. If you are interested in getting connected or if we can help you in any way, email us at info at theplantchurch.org. Uh, we're going to turn to uh, the, the message this morning. Uh, so if you have a Bible, would you open up to Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. It is the Christmas season or, or the Advent season. This is the season that uh, marks the start of the church calendar every year. And, and so Advent begins, if you, if you ever follow like a, a a regular uh, lectionary readings or anything. The year ended yesterday and it started again today. So happy new year. Uh, and, and, and so it starts with the Advent season and Advent is a season of waiting. It's a season of tension. Anyone ever live in a season of tension before? Of waiting where, where you felt like nothing was quite happening yet and you were waiting. And that's what the Advent season is. I remember growing up in church and the painful waiting as we lit candle after candle after candle every Sunday, not because I was thinking some holy spiritual thoughts about Jesus being bored and God coming into the world. I knew when this candle got lit, I got presents. That's what I was excited about as a kid. But there's waiting and tension. And in this time of year, we, we want to reflect on that. And so you'll hear me kind of use Christmas season and Advent season a little bit interchangeably. But when we think about Advent, what we're thinking about is a season of waiting, a season of uh, tension, a season of longing for things to be fulfilled that aren't quite there yet. You know what I'm talking about? You have those feelings in your own life. I do too. And, and so what we want to do during this Advent season as we reflect on, on this, uh, this idea of waiting and tension is we want to reflect on what we're calling the real reason for the season. How many of you love those cheesy bumper stickers? If you have one, it's not cheesy. I'm just kidding. But, I, but they're, they're a little funny, right? The, the Jesus is the reason for the season or the real reason for the season, right? And, and sometimes I, they come off to, to me. Again, I've told you I'm a little bit cynical. Uh, but they come off to me as like there's a little bit of an agenda that's like not, not always everything about that is what it's cracked up to be when you see that bumper sticker. Maybe that's not your impression of it. That's how I feel when I read it. If you have one, keep it on your car. It's wonderful. Uh, but... But there's a real, there's a truth behind that, that Jesus is the reason for the season, right? It's not about a culture war or they're not holiday cups at Starbucks. They should be Christmas cups. I'm not interested in a culture war, but, but there is a truth behind the fact that Jesus is the reason for the season. We wouldn't celebrate Christmas the way we do if it wasn't for Jesus, right? So there's, there's some truth to it. So we want to jump into four weeks talking about the real reason for the season. Yes, it's true that this is all about Jesus, but why is it about Jesus? Why? And, and so what we're going to do for the next four weeks is, is we want to try and sum up what the angels said to the shepherds when they said, we are here to bring good news of great joy for all people. What does that good news mean? Why is Jesus this reason for the season? Why is Jesus such good news? And, and we're going to talk about these four uh, aspects of the good news of Jesus. It's, it's part of what we talk about as a denomination, the Christian Missionary Alliance, as the fourfold gospel. Uh, but you don't have to get too hung up on that. That's just kind of the framework we're using for talking about this. But we're going to talk about these next four weeks, this reason of why we celebrate. It's because Jesus has come to be our Savior which we're gonna talk about this week. Next week, we're gonna talk about Jesus has come to be our sanctifier. Then we're gonna talk about Jesus has come to be our healer. And finally, that Jesus has come and will come again as our king. And we would like to, I'd like to suggest that these four ideas and statements sum up the whole good news of what the angels were singing to the shepherds. We have good news of great joy for all people. The real reason for the season. And so this morning I want to start by talking about how Jesus has come into the world to be our savior. Let's look at Matthew chapter 1 verses 18 to 20 together. 
It says this, this is how Jesus the Messiah was born. His mother, Mary, was engaged to be married to Joseph. But before the marriage took place, while she was still a virgin, she became pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. Joseph, to whom she was engaged, was a righteous man and did not want to disgrace her publicly. So he decided to break the engagement quietly. As he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Joseph, son of David, the angel said, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit, and she will have a son. And you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All of this occurred to fulfill the Lord's message through his prophet. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded and took Mary as his wife. But he did not have sexual relations with her until her son was born, and Joseph named him Jesus. Let's pray before we continue. Father, sometimes it's so hard to hear these same words and same stories year after year and not get just caught up in the routine of it. But I pray that your Holy Spirit would breathe fresh upon this room this morning. Breathe fresh upon our hearts so that we can have our eyes and our hearts and our minds awakened to what you want to say to us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So it's Christmas time. Presents, how how many of you have finished your shopping already? None of you are overachievers like that. That's good. I feel like I'm in good company because I haven't started anything yet. How many of you have started your shopping at least? Couple people, oh, wow, you guys are good. I haven't started my shopping yet either. This is is gonna be interesting. But how many of you have uh, either now or have had young kids and maybe you've done this for, for a, a birthday or you've done it for Christmas or a niece or a nephew or someone like that. And you go, oh, I've got the perfect gift for them. My wife and I, I think we do this every year with our little girls and we're like, oh, okay, they're into this right now. They're gonna love playing with this. And once in a while, it's a huge hit. But most of the time, how many of you know about this? This is what happens to us. We, we're, the buildup's there. We put the present under the tree. We're all excited. They're going to love this. They've been interested in these kinds of things all the time, this whatever toy or book or whatever that's going to be amazing. They open it up, or you have to help them open it if they're really little. You take the toy out of the packaging, and while you go to hand them the toy, they walk off with the box and play with it. Isn't that the worst? Isn't that the worst? We're like, hey, get back here. I put a lot of thought into this for you. I'm just playing with the box or the wrapping paper. That's even worse. That's trash. That's garbage. What are you doing? The wrapping paper or the package isn't supposed to be the focus, is it? But often our little children are just in awe of a box. And so we keep saying, we're just going to get them boxes for Christmas. Why are we spending money on gifts? All they want to play with is the box. But it, it's so funny because the, the box or the wrapping paper or the packaging isn't supposed to be the focus, right? It's, it's the context in which the gift gets presented to us all. Yes? So the point of packaging is to kind of frame the gift in the most beautiful way. It's not meant to become the focal point, right? You're like, okay, we know this about packaging and wrapping paper. Why are you saying this? So Here's why I'm saying this. When, when it comes to this passage that we read today, and specifically the line that the angel says, you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And, and when we talk about Jesus as our savior, we can really start to focus very easily on the wrong thing, on the packaging, if you will, okay? The packaging gives us context for the gift, But the gift is what ultimately matters. And this statement about Jesus feels like this. He's our savior. He saves us from our sins. But we have to be able to understand sin properly if we know how good this news about him saving us is. Because if we don't really understand the context, the packaging, what its purpose is, 
then we're going to miss how good the gift is. Are you with me? Okay. Some of you are. That's good. We're going to keep going. And so we have to talk about sin this morning because it helps, not because it's the present or the focus, but because it helps give us an understanding of how beautiful this gift is of Jesus as our Savior. So you're all following me, right? But whenever we start talking about sin, we all do one of three things. Now, don't put your hand up, but, but tell me if any of these three kinds of people resonate with you. When we start talking about sin, we do one of three things. First, we hide. I can't tell people about that. Second, we give up. This is too overwhelming. I'm just going to do whatever I want. I'm, I'm not even going to try and fight it anymore. Or third, we perform. And those of us who uh, maybe grew up in church in particular, we know how to kind of put on a good face in a religious environment. We're really good at performing. And, and maybe we really don't actually have any skeletons in the closet, so to speak, but we actually develop an arrogance because we think, wow, look how good I'm doing at this thing. Look at how well I've done. Why can't everyone else get it together? Now, I know all three of these are true when we talk about sin because I have been all three of them. I've hidden in my sin. I have just given up and said, I'm not going to bother trying to stop this. I have also tried to perform and say, look at how good of a job I'm doing. Pat me on the back. But all of us are engaged in one or more of these kinds of personalities when it comes to discussions about sin, we're going to like, okay, like how can I just stay as general on this topic as I can and just kind of move on until we talk about, oh, thank God we're done talking about it. Let's move on. Anyone feel any of that? Does that resonate with you? You can, you can talk to me, nod your head, give me, give me a shout. Johnny's not here to give me an amen. So you, you got to help me out. You got to help me out a little bit. I need to know you're alive. So all of us are kind of engaged in that, but here's what all three of these kinds of uh, approaches to sin have in common. They're all focused on the packaging instead of the gift. And they do it in different ways. Uh, one is, is so focused on the sin that, that they just become overcome by shame and that's why they hide. Others are, are so focused on sin that they think it's all powerful and they're just overwhelmed by it. And I'm like, I'm just going to roll with it. Why am I trying to fight this? And then others, they, they are so focused on failing and being like other people who've messed up that they grit their teeth and fight through it. And they tend to develop a lot of bitterness and arrogance in their search to perform. So here's what I want to invite all of you to do today as we discuss this topic of sin and more importantly, how Jesus has saved us from our sins. I, I want to invite you all uh, to stop playing with the packaging. Stop looking at the wrapping paper and look at what your father in heaven has given you. Sound good? So, so let's jump into this together. I want us to understand sin for what it is, the context, the packaging, the reality of it in each of our lives, not so that we can hide from it or give up on it or perform and try and beat it, but so that we can be caught up in awe and wonder of how much Jesus loves us, how much he is for us, and how incredible it is that he has saved us from our sin. You ready? So let's dive into this. We're going to look and we're going to do this throughout this series. We want to trace the thread through the Old Testament and how Jesus fulfills each of these aspects of Savior, Sanctifier, Healer, and Coming King. And, and there's no better place to talk about and learn about the problem of sin than going all the way back to the first book of the Bible, and that's Genesis. So we're going to look. I'm not going to have these up on the screen, but if you're one of those people that loves to know, is pastor actually biblical here? You can look in Genesis. Genesis 3, Genesis 6, and Genesis 11. Now, before I get into these real quick, um, for anyone, how, how many of you, just, this is not a, I'm, you can put your hand up, but just gives me an idea. How many of you grew up in a church background of some kind? 
Okay, and that's totally fine if you did not. Uh, the reason, it's actually to your detriment if you grew up in a church context for what I'm about to say. I grew up in a church context. Basically, what I was taught growing up, tell me if this was similar, is we have sin because Adam and Eve took fruit off the tree, disobeyed God. And so now we're all in sin. And that is true, but it's only partly true. If you were to ask uh, someone in Jesus's day where the problem of sin originated, they would tell you it starts in Genesis 3 and goes to Genesis 11. So it's one big, uh, something just came to mind that I'm not going to use right now as a terminology for it, but it's one big giant mess of, of spiraling sin and it's layer upon layer of problem that, that comprises all of what sin is. So it starts in Genesis 3, keeps getting worse and worse. We hit Genesis 6 and it really spirals. And then we get to Genesis 11, it's like the icing on the cake. Are you all following what I'm saying here? So, so we're going to go through these one at a time and talk about each of these kind of layers, I'll call it, and how Jesus saves us from each of these. And the first one I want to talk to you about this morning is that Jesus saves us from the flesh. And this is in Genesis chapter 3, and this one we'll, we'll give the most time to this morning. Um, but it says, it, it, the, the Apostle Paul in the New Testament uses this term, the flesh, to describe our, our inherent nature, our, our fundamental flaw of like we're broken and sin is kind of our state of being, if I can put it that way. And, and so that's why I'm calling it that. Jesus saves us from our flesh, our, just the basic sin nature that we have. In Genesis 3, it says this, uh, Eve's looking at this fruit and the serpent's trying to convince her. You know the story. And then, and then she takes the fruit and she eats it. And it says at that moment, their eyes were open and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. And when the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord walking about in the garden. So they hid from the Lord among the trees. Then the Lord called to the man, where are you? And he replied, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. Who told you you were naked? See, they had no idea what that even meant. The Lord asked, have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? The man replied, it was the woman you gave me. Typical. Then the, then the Lord God asked the woman, what have you done? He's like, it was this serpent. It's so funny, nothing's changed in like millennia, has it? Everyone's just passing the buck. Wasn't me. And that's why I ate it, she said. Sin literally means, in, in the Hebrew and the Greek, it means missing the mark. It implies that we all humans and all of creation, in fact, it, it had a created purpose. God intended things to kind of hit a certain target. If any of you are the philosophy type of telos, there, there's some kind of aim or purpose or goal that every thing in creation has. But what sin has done, and it's broken and fractured and distorted that ultimate purpose. And so everything misses the mark somehow. You feel that in your life sometimes? That's sin. You feel that sense of like missing the mark? There's something more I'm not quite hitting here. And this idea of missing the mark, it affects three basic aspects of our life. First, it affects how we relate to God. This is kind of the baseline of our sin nature, of our flesh. When we're missing the mark, we are separated from God. You see, the attendant purpose in Eden, Eden, the long story short, scholars have, have done a lot of work around understanding that this description of the Garden of Eden was describing the way uh, the ancient Near East people would build temples. And then you would place in this, this garden, these kings would have these lush gardens and there'd be an image of the God placed in the garden. And it was to represent God to the whole world. And that's really funny. You've got this garden called Eden. And who does God put in the garden? He puts a man and a woman. He says, they are my image in the garden. 
And so God's trying to create this like temple space. And what happens in temples? You got to put your, your brain to like thousands of years ago, the way people used to think back then. What happens in temples? Well, it's where people can meet with God. We can be close to God. We can commune with God. We can become friends even with God. And what was unique about the, the Hebrew worldview is it wasn't just the king or the rich people or the powerful people who could be close to God. Everyone could be close to God. And so we're separated from God because now something's fractured and broken and we've missed the mark. Do you sometimes feel far from God? Disconnected? Is it hard to hear God's voice? Have you ever heard God's voice? That's not how you were intended to live. Did you know that? So how we relate to God matters. How we decide to live in the world matters. Are we going to seek God's wisdom or are we going to try and figure out wisdom our own way? That's essentially what Eve's struggle was. She's trying to decide, but God said he was going to do all this stuff. And he's like, well, listen, but this is going to make you wise. And I love the New Living Translation. It says, Eve was convinced. And so she took the fruit. She's like, oh, I think this is a better option. How many of, uh, how many of us go like, you know, I think I've got a better idea. I had a mentor who would say, theology 101 is God's smart and he knows stuff we don't. And I'm like, that's a great rule. I should adopt that for my life. And man, how many times do I miss the mark on following that rule for life? Just rush ahead. I'm a very like, think for, like think later after I've already like acted sometimes. And, and I do something and then I go, oh, that wasn't a good idea. I'm gonna try it a different way. And I'm like, wait, why don't I just stop and ask God, how he wants to approach this. But it affects our relationship with God. That's what sin has done, and, and it's affected us personally. But it also affects how we handle relationships. What's the first thing they did after they sinned? First, they hid from God, and then they blamed each other. Not a great start for relationships. Do you think that's how God intended relationships to function? How many of you are frustrated with friendships, with family relationships, with coworker relationships? You're just like, man, they are missing the mark. I am missing, something is not connecting here. It's sin. It's our brokenness. It affects friendships, neighbors, families, marriages, coworkers. It affects people of different ethnicities, cultures, backgrounds. And then it also affects how we relate to ourselves, finally. You see, we, we think about, okay, God and others. You know, the whole uh, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, right? And we think, okay, that's the, the greatest command. And, and we say, yes, it is the greatest command, absolutely, because Jesus said it was. So we love God and we love others, but we forget the little as yourself part. And if you don't actually love yourself the way God loves you, how can you expect to love other people? If you think low of yourself, have a lot of self-hatred, you don't care for your own well-being, how on earth are you going to respect the well-being of someone else? And so I, I think about this. This is something that we think too little about, I believe, especially in evangelical Protestant churches. It's not just about how we love ourselves in terms of our emotions or our, our psyche or our mental state. It, it has to do with our very bodies too, doesn't it? Are you taking care of your health, your well-being? Did you know that's that the way we miss the mark on taking care of our own bodies is part of the brokenness of sin in our lives? How we choose uh, to use our sexuality or celibacy can miss the mark and be affected by sin. What color our skin is has even come into play with how sin works in our bodies, hasn't it? We've designated certain bodies as better than other bodies. And we have to remember that Jesus came, not as some disembodied spirit into the world. How did he come into the world? How many of you who are married have seen your wife give birth? Whew, it's visceral. I, I, there's no other word I can do. It is a powerful experience. That's how Jesus came in. That's how God came into the world. 
out of one body, in a body. And we get uncomfortable when we talk about that. But it's actually heresy to say Jesus didn't come as a human. Christian doctrine for 2,000 years has said he was human. He was fully God and fully human. And so we can't ignore that there's something that needs to be redeemed about our body as well as our spirit and our soul, yes? All of these things, how we relate to God, how we relate to others, and how we relate to ourselves, including our bodies, it's all been affected by sin. It's all missed the mark in one way or another for each of us. You can probably think of ways that you have been in sin in one or more of those categories right now. But Jesus has saved us from these and taken our sin upon himself. So you don't need to hide in it anymore. You don't need to give up and just continue it anymore. And you don't need to pretend and be afraid of failing. You see, we see how Jesus related perfectly to God the Father, didn't he? In every instance, always obedient to him, always seeking his wisdom. He was not separated from him. How he handled relationships was flawless, wasn't it? He knew how to love people so well, and he even knew how to love people enough to rebuke them at times. Love doesn't just keep the peace. Love tries to make real peace. He honored people who were of different ethnicities and backgrounds and cultures. I think of the woman at the well in Samaria. He should not have been there. A Jewish rabbi doesn't be alone with a woman of ill repute like that. but he just redeemed every situation, every relationship he touched. You know, he took care of his own health, his own physical body. He got time away with his disciples. He said, we need to get away. We've been doing a lot of ministry. Let's go retreat and be alone for a while. The midway point of his ministry, they actually went way out, way outside of Israel, Judea, Galilee area, and just spent some time. All of these things in Jesus' life. He was perfect and spotless in every single way. And that perfect, spotless life was given for you and I to pay for every violation we have made in those areas. Every way we have missed the mark, his life has paid for it because it was perfect. I love the words of Isaiah 53, 5. It says, but he was pierced for our rebellion." crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. And it goes on later in chapter 53 and says, all of us like sheep have strayed away. Like Adam and Eve hiding in the garden. We've left God's path to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him, Jesus, the sins of us all. What sin in your flesh have you been hiding? What sin have you given up on? Just rolling with it. I can't beat this. What have you been trying to outperform because you're afraid of failing? Would you give it to your Savior today? Don't be caught up anymore in the, the packaging. Give it to the one who has been giving everything to save you from it, yes? So that's the first part. Jesus saves us from our flesh. That's in some ways the most personal. It's the part of sin that we think about the most, but it it doesn't stop there. Second, Jesus not only saves us from the flesh, Jesus saves us from the devil. Genesis chapter three, and and I'll read a verse from there, and then another couple of verses in chapter six. Uh, This is God speaking And and he says to the serpent, I'm going to cause hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. That's the first prophetic word about Jesus coming in the scriptures. 
And then in Genesis chapter six, we have this very weird story. Just read a couple of the verses, one and five. It says, then the people began to multiply on the earth and daughters were born to them and the sons of God saw the beautiful women and took any they wanted as their wives. Uh, those sons of God language there, that's spiritual beings it's referring to. It's not talking about humans. And, and then it goes on in verse five, it says, the Lord observed the extent of human wickedness on the earth, kind of all swirling because of this. And he saw that everything they thought or imagined was consistently and totally evil. Now, we're not just dealing, like I said, with the fallout of Genesis 3. God mentions like enemy, devil, the humans, and you and these forces of darkness, you're going to be at war with each other. This is the reality now. This is the reality. And, and, and then we see this kind of strange story in Genesis 6. We don't have time to get into all the nuances, but essentially what it's describing is demonic influence in humanity. Not, not, it's taking what is our flesh, if I can say that, and it's kind of supercharging it and making it way worse. That's, that's essentially what's happening here. We're fighting not just against our flesh, we're fighting against the powers of darkness. They're oppressing us, they're influencing us, they're keeping some of us in bondage. The New Testament word to describe this is demonization. This is real and personal evil. It isn't something that just, it, it, we don't really discuss this too much in, in the Western world and Western church, do we? Uh, we we kind of tend to leave it ambiguous or it's just kind of generalized, uh, but it's never something that can really affect or influence us, we think. However, many of us don't realize that many times we are living under the subtle power and influence of the demonic in different ways. One of the best ways to explain how this works, like I kind of mentioned, is imagine you're dealing with a, a sin issue in, in your flesh, right? Uh, it's a, an issue maybe of anger or, or you're dealing with an issue of lust and, and you've got these like kind of sin things that are your responsibility. You can't go blame it on the serpent like Eve did, right? This is your thing. But then there's times where that rage, that anger is just supercharged, or there's times where that sinful uh, pursuit of whatever lustful passions you're going after, it's supercharged. And, and there are times when there's something more than just your own sinful nature at work there. And, and, and this is partly because you're dealing with a flesh issue that hasn't been dealt with, a sin issue, but you're also dealing with something that's demonic. And the primary reason this kind of evil is present and active in the world is essentially because we have given authority over to those powers. What do I mean by that? When God created the whole earth and he created the universe, think about what he said to humans. He gave them authority to multiply and subdue the earth. You're in charge here. You have all authority. Eve had every ability and authority to say no to the serpent. But she didn't. And, and so what happened is we came under the authority of the devil, of the serpent. It doesn't say it's the devil, the serpent, but that's generally what you get from the subtext of the rest of the Old Testament. And, and, and so what, you're kind of left with this, like, now what do we do? We're stuck under this, this power of darkness. We're stuck in prison to our own sin. What's going to happen? And I love this. Jesus often describes, if you ever read about in the New Testament, him describing taking back the keys of death and hell. The, the keys are, are kind of an ancient kind of term in the first century when he was saying this, of, of describing authority. He's come to take back the authority. Satan had the, the keys and the authority over death and hell, but no more. Now, death is not in his power. Jesus has all authority. And now hell is not a palace, it's a prison. And so Jesus describes that he's doing that, but he's not just saying words. Jesus is walking in that authority constantly. Mark chapter 1, 27, Jesus had just casted a demon out of someone and all of the people are shocked and they just say, what sort of new teaching is this? It has such authority, even evil spirits obey him. This is amazing, we've never seen this. Jesus even taught his disciples to cast out demons and he gave them authority to do it. In fact, before he returned to his father, what is one of the commands that he gave them? Heal the sick, 
cast out demons. That's, that's part of our call. Does it seem weird you're here today visiting and you're like, what is this place? This is weird. If you're thinking that, I'd love to talk with you after. We're not that weird. No, I'm just, I'm just teasing a little bit. But, but really, this is, this is a real part of, of the real reality we all face as human beings, not just Christians. It doesn't, this reality doesn't suddenly exist if you become a Christian. This, this is part of why things are as twisted as they are. It's not purely down to our own flesh and our own sinful nature. This is often supercharged, if I can use that terminology. So Jesus came along, though, and no evil spirit could resist him. He cast them out. And Paul, the apostle, even writes this in Colossians chapter 2. He says that Jesus canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. And then he says this. In this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. Something about Jesus' death on the cross was a victory over all of the powers of darkness. Because what the powers of darkness want you and I to do is not resist any sin, any of our fleshly things, because they're all about self, right? And then, yeah, we encourage that because it's going to mess you up and destroy you, and we're out here to destroy you. There's hostility between humankind and the demonic, yes? But what does Jesus do? He does not choose his own way. He submits his life to the Father. What does he say in the garden? If there's a way, take this cup from me, but not what I will, what you will. Total submission to the Father, unlike any human had ever been able to do. Dying on the cross, what seemed embarrassing, shameful, foolish. If you want to nerd out with me sometime, we can talk about how the cross was viewed in Roman culture. It was bad and embarrassing. Like, if you were actually a Roman citizen, you wouldn't be crucified. You'd be beheaded because they wouldn't think of crucifying you. That's just terrible. That's why Paul wasn't crucified. He was most likely beheaded because he was a Roman citizen. They're like, we can't do that to a Roman citizen. That's for subhuman people. So this was embarrassing. It was foolish. It was the worst kind of way to go. And Paul says what's actually happening here is... He so submitted himself to God and so humbled himself that he shamed. And I love one translation. It says he made a public spectacle of the forces of darkness. I'll show you where true power comes from. True power, true authority comes from total submission to the Father. Living out of a place of his love and his humility, not out of taking and grabbing whatever I can. And so the defeat of evil was finalized when Jesus went to the cross. Now in our culture, people live under the influence of the demonic every day, even Christians. You can, if you disagree with that, we can talk about it later. I can explain where I'm coming from with that. We don't have time to get into that right now. But because we don't really think about this as an option, we think, well, isn't that something that happens like other places? There's no like demonic activity here, right? We, we, we live in, oh man, this is a whole other sermon for another time, but we live in such a, a modern world. Like if, if I don't see it, if I can't measure it, if I can't taste it, if I can't smell it, it doesn't exist. But that's not how most of the world thinks today, and that's not how most of the world has thought for thousands and thousands of years. I've got friends who were from other parts of the world. We used to play soccer together, and we were swap, swapping stories about different things. It was an opportunity for me to share about how Jesus heals, and, and this other friend of ours was like, whoa, like you, you think that's like real? You believe that? And then I had a friend, one from India, one from South America, and they're like, yeah, like my brother had a heart problem. We went to the medical, to the hospital, but we stopped at the shaman first. And, and, and then they, this is normal for their culture. This, this is how most of the world sees that there is both a seen and an unseen world. Most of the world thinks this way. And so our, our detriment in the West is we go, okay, that's kind of an evil, but maybe God, Satan just like made my car not work today so I couldn't get to church. Maybe, but most likely you just had some work that needed to be done on your car. But there, we have to start acting and, and, and realizing and discerning when there truly is something spiritually evil at work. 
That takes practice. That takes discernment. And I want you to know that's something I'm still even refining in my life and learning. This is not a quick, oh, I understand it all now. This is a lifetime of learning how to think differently than we've been taught to think, right? But, But here's what I found is that often when someone has a repeating sin issue and they just can't seem to break it and they keep falling back in and falling back in, often I've found there, not always, but often I've found there's some level of demonic influence that needs to be dealt with. And and so here's what I want to challenge you. If you're hiding in sin, if you have given up on your sin, if you're stuck trying to perform your way out of it, I want to challenge you with something. Ask for help. Reach out to me. Reach out to one of our leaders. Say, hey, I want to discern. Here's the issue. I'm just going to be honest about it. I want to discern. Is this just a flesh thing or is there something else going on here too? Is there something demonic that needs to be dealt with? I want to challenge you and invite you. This is the kind of church where you can get free from that stuff. You don't have to keep repeating the same cycles in your life over and over and over and over. It's a definition of insanity, isn't it? So why would you do that to yourself? Don't be deceived any longer by what the enemy's been trying to do to say, well, that's not real. This is just your problem. You're just like this. You'll never get free. Much more we can talk about on that, simplifying some very, very complex issues. But but you hear what I'm saying. But here's the beautiful thing that I want to land on with this is that Jesus has once and for all freed you from needing to live under the powers of darkness anymore. Don't for a second give into the lie that you can't change or you can't get free. Jesus has the power to free you. I've seen him set people free. The the clarity, this is the thing I hear the most, is when someone gets free, they're suddenly going, my head is so quiet. It was so noisy. I didn't realize how much noise and confusion and tension and chaos there was in my head. I feel so much peace right now. And they're able to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit speaking to them. Sometimes it's so powerful what he says to them. Do not let your created purpose go. Don't settle for missing the mark and live in some level of torment. Jesus has freed us from the power of evil, from the devil himself and from the demonic don't have to be afraid of it. Can't stress that enough. He's done and finished it. Finally, we'll close with this. Jesus has not only saved us from the flesh, he's not only saved us from the devil, but he has saved us from the world. Genesis chapter 11, verse four, and then I'm gonna define what I mean when I say world. Uh, Genesis 4, 11, chapter four, excuse me, Genesis chapter 11, verse four, it's the story of the Tower of Babel. Have you heard this story? They build this tower and then God gives them all this, these different languages. It says this, then they said, come, let us build a great city for ourselves with a tower that reaches into the sky. This will make us famous and keep us from being scattered all over the world. Now, this is not a cute story uh, explaining how all the languages of the world came to be. Contrary to popular belief. That's a very kind of modern reading on, oh, this must be what they're talking about. They weren't asking that question when the biblical writers were writing this. They understood that this, teacher, this, this story teaches us something profound about the nature of sin. And, and how profound Jesus' saving work is over what we call the world. See, not only is sin in our flesh, not only is it supercharged often by demonic influence corrupting us, but this story highlights one final piece of the sin issue, and that's that sometimes sin is corporate and systemic. And here's what I mean by that. This story is many people gathering to make a city, to make a way of life, to live in a culture, to live out a world with certain ideologies, a certain framework and belief about the world. And they had a particular belief about themselves and arrogance, we'd say, that they could build this tower to the sky. Now that seems like really innocuous. Don't we have tall skyscrapers now? Are are we the same thing? What this means in this biblical language, sky is some Synonymous with heaven. If you could build a tower to heaven, it meant that you had access to come and go freely between heaven and earth, i.e., you are a God. 
Okay, this is really important for us to understand. This isn't some innocuous story about wanting to have the record in the Guinness Book of World Records for the tallest building. This is about an arrogance to say this system, this place, this culture, this city, this, this is what we mean by the term world. This world is greater than any other kingdom out there and we are going to demonstrate its prominence by showing ourselves to be gods. Now, do you think the, the people who thought up the idea to build this tower were the ones who actually did the work? No. There were probably many, many slaves. It's what's implied here. People forced to do this from other nations, other places, other peoples who, who had no interest in being a part of this to be forced to serve this group of people who said, we are better than you. And we are going to show you by building this tower. So they were all caught up in this belief about themselves. This is a lot of what the world does. And it sounds a lot like our culture today, really, because it it hasn't changed that much. When you start reading the Bible, you go, we do the same thing. Nothing's changed. And, and, And so there's this idea that they had a shared responsibility for this sin. And it was something in the air that you just, you didn't think about it. You just believed, yeah, we're better than everyone else. You were just raised from the time you were born to think this is who we are. We're practically gods and everyone else needs to submit to us. And, and, and so this is sin that is a shared thing. As I said, it's not one person's fault. It's passed down from generation to generation. It's just in the water, if, if you will. It's in the air we breathe. Second Chronicles 6, it kind of provides a picture of what corporate sin can, can look like. Uh, King Solomon, he, he was praying and asking that God would, would listen if his people, Israel, ever sinned corporately. It said that if, if we're conquered, if there's no rain, if there's famine, if there's any kind of disaster, disease, anything, that, that when we as a people come to you and we repent, that you would restore us. So there's a sense and understanding that, that sometimes even Israel became like Babel. Ooh. And that's, that's one of the stories you see repeated over and over in the Old Testament. Man, like we did it again. We were kind of the little guys. We came out of Egypt and then we just did the same thing. How many of you have ever experienced that? An institution, an organization, a nation, a country, any students of history. You see how they rise up out of nothing and it's really good and noble. And then they, they're doing the same things they were just fighting against warring against. This is what we call the world. It's these patterns of of humans coming together to say, yeah, we're better and we're going to show you. And so we have corporate sin in our, our own country. Sometimes we don't like to talk about it. It's very uncomfortable. I wish I had more time so we could go down that road more, but we just, we don't have time today. And I I don't think it's pastorally responsible to open that can of worms and just leave you hanging on the first Sunday of Advent. But there are things we need to consider. Just uh, one, one thing, you ever, anyone ever seen the movie Blood Diamond? The movie Blood Diamond's based on, on this reality of, of how uh, they, would, they would literally uh, steal and, and kill over the diamond mines. And, and so now you see people trying to come out of this system of the way that happens, this, this shared corporate sin, if I can call it that. And you'll see a lot of uh, diamond dealers and things like that, and, and, and they'll give some kind of ethical, they have some kind of certification that these, these, these certification that these diamonds were not procured through violence or anything like that. People are starting to become aware of, and, and in different ways with different things in different times in history, we've been aware of, we should probably stop corporately doing this and change and something else ends up taking its place. But all of these things, they can feel overwhelming. Doesn't it just feel like those who uh, don't learn their history are doomed to repeat it, but then we're just doomed to repeat it anyway? Does it ever feel like that to you? Anyone know what I'm talking about? But here are the words of Jesus, how even he saves us from the world. I love John 16, 33. It says this, take heart, I have overcome the world. 
It's so easy to get swept up into our culture. It's so easy to even get swept up into, especially now, political ideologies, to get swept up into consumerism, to get swept up into individualistic thinking, avoiding commitments as much as possible. The patterns of this world, right? But Jesus has overcome all of this and so much more. And he's invited us to live differently in a corporate environment In the midst of a a corporate environment, a world environment that thrives in conflict, strife, thrives on selfish ambition, on arrogance, he's invited us to walk this humble way of the cross with him. Because he saved us from this world, that we are in this world, but no longer of this world when he saves us. So as we close, I want to pose two questions to you. Jesus saves us from the flesh. Jesus saves us from the devil. Jesus saves us from the world. But here's my question for you today as you think about these three aspects, these three layers of salvation. First, what are you seeking salvation from? Are you seeking salvation from something that is sin? Or or is it something else you're seeking salvation from? And who are you seeking salvation from? Who have you hung your hopes on? What have you hung your hopes on? Think about your daily life. That's where it gets the most real. In your daily life, what are you hanging your hopes on to save you? What do you think you need saving from? Is it the world, the flesh, and the devil? Or is it simply wanting more? I need more. Save me from not having enough. He's done that too, but probably not in the way our kind of consumeristic thinking thinks we need to be saved from it. It was great having you with us today. We do hope that this sermon inspired you to know Christ and make him known. For more sermons and resources, please visit us at plantchurch.com.